1: How long should disgraced pastors be kept out of the pulpit? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Coble, my name is Brian Fromm. Great to have you with us today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. If you've missed any of our shows this week, go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe rate and review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right. Uh, I saw this online the other day, and Steve, we could do, we could pick a million of these stories, sadly. Uh, But Julie Royce uh, over at her website says this, back in the game, pastor ousted from Ohio mega church launches Florida church. So it says, less than a year after Pastor Tim Armstrong was ousted from his Ohio megachurch for alleged bullying and, quote, harsh leadership, a Florida megachurch hired him. Now, Armstrong has launched a campus of that church, uh, and so that goes through all of this stuff. Armstrong says in the video, we came here very broken. We came here at the invitation of the pastor to come and heal from some ministry stuff that had happened, that we walk through. Uh, He was forced to resign in August of 2021 as the senior pastor of the chapel, which is a multi-site mega church. uh, And an independent probe found that there was a pattern of sin and a harsh leadership style. So that's one of those stories. But we can add other stories, right? You've got Mm -hmm. the Mark Driscoll. Uh, We all listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. He kind of went silent. And then all of a sudden... Boom, Mark Jisco plants a church in Arizona. Uh, we could keep going with the people who have kind of gone away, and then they kind of re back. And it always raises this question, not just in the megachurch, but it feels like it happens in the megachurch more, but it, small churches as well. When a pastor has to leave the ministry, be it for bullying and harshness, be it for an affair, be it for whatever else it might be, The age old question is what in your mind should and needs to happen before they ever, if they ever end up back, not just leading, but in the pulpit again? They're leading a church. And they're, because a lot of times it's usually guys, these guys go away and you never even hear that they do anything and they just kind of show up again. Others of them go away for good. How do you view that as a pastor, somebody who, you know, wants to remain high integrity with character, when somebody disqualifies themselves and it's not just rumor, it's legitimate, right? Sure. What do you think should happen? What's the process? What is it? What is your take on that? I,
2: honestly, I don't know. I had this. I didn't realize I had this many thoughts on this topic until you asked it. Oh, I'm ready. Um, I'm glad because there's a lot. There's, <laughs> there's like there's multiple things, I think, that happen within evangelical culture. So mm-hmm. a lot of us are very familiar with the person who has a ton of power mm-hmm. and a ton of uh, of uh, kind of a big platform kind of, uh, you know, kind of being massaged and put back up in uh, in leadership. Um, And there's this sort of like sense that we, you know, the almost like the star of the show has got to stay the star of the show. Um, And then there's another side in evangelical culture where I think um, and this is more so maybe based on my own personal experience, what I've seen um in evangelical spaces it's where you almost take out the idea that grace is grace mm. um, and so i think there's both things are are happening in society so mm-hmm. on one side it's uh you almost lose this sense of being gospel centered and in the gospel of grace that you know that that jesus christ is the one uh who made you uh gave you right standing in the first place. And and it's, it's his qualifying that, that uh, allows you to be there. And, Mm -hmm. and if it was up to our own performance in and of itself, we would all be disqualified. Um, And so uh, there is this sense on one end where we can take a really legalistic approach Mm -hmm. to it and we have grace for other people, but we don't have grace for pastors. Um, And so I think both Actually happen in society. Oftentimes, though, I think the ones that we're familiar with uh, is in, in the mega church space often is uh, a fear underneath the idea of if this person is no longer in this place or what power does mm. like power dynamics it, itself. Uh, does to an organization and an uh, institution uh, like a local church. And so you do have the uh, Bill Hybels of the world Mm -hmm. and James McDonald's Mm -hmm. of the world and et cetera. The list the list go go on. Um, And so my biggest thing, especially with Western American individuality, Um, I think that and I I think Tim Keller would say something like this. Part of the reason why the church in America has continued to thrive as opposed to in Europe is because of uh, this releasing of power. Mm. Uh, Sort of like saying like, hey, you can go be an entrepreneurial pastor and start a church and and go to this place or that place and just start ex nihilo out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And you don't need like uh, you don't need like years and years of submitting to somebody. Um, in order for you to be able to do that. Um, but then at the same time, uh, there is this like lack of wanting to submit to any kind of authority mm-hmm. that in our individuality and in our uh, sort of like no, I, I march to the beat of my own drumness right. uh, that I think is an uh, American value. Mm-hmm. I'm mar- marching to, you know, Aaron Rodgers thinks it's a really cool <laughs> thing to say, I kind of march to the beat of my own drum. That's uh-huh. the way I am. That's a value in American society. But I think when it comes to the church, the process has to be some kind of submission to an authority um, and, and a process of restoration that is not legalistic, isn't check all the boxes and make sure that you do all the stuff that we tell you to do. Um, but is in the yep. name of of grace and restoration. I think Gordon McDonald was one of the, mm-hmm. the people who was restored, and yes. and it's a great kind of story of 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 redemption in that way. Um, and and I, I think there's a, a handful of, of others, but it seems to be like in some ways there's an unwillingness for people to want to submit to authority. So
1: interestingly, uh, one more part of this story with Armstrong is he's never apologized. He's mm-hmm. never publicly said I did anything wrong, which feels problematic to me. And I also think that there's grace and restoration, but for some, that doesn't mean they should ever be in a pulpit again. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're permanently disqualified. Just because I forgive you and show you grace and we as a church restore you doesn't mean we have to take Steve and put him up there every Sunday anymore yeah. because he's got some preaching gift. It's, hey, like we can't do that but we're going to love you we're going to restore you you're just not going to be up there like for some reason and i think it gets to what you're you're hinted at earlier that there's this there's this cult of personality in a lot of churches yeah, yeah. that says gosh, we got sadly it often says we have to hide this because if that guy's not in the pulpit anymore yeah. our church is going to shrink we're not going to be the cool church anymore and what like god's just removed completely Uh from the from the scenario and it's like yeah and and i think it's i think it's a huge red flag when these pastors just kind of go quiet for a year and then show up again and they they're on social media and they're on this
2: uh but guess what it happens all the time it happens um some part of it, I think, is uh, being hooked on celebrity culture yep. in general, and that's an American value more than it is a church value. It's it's the world seeping into the uh, into the local church, and I still am. I'm I'm really. It's interesting to me. I don't I don't know why I think it's interesting that Mark Driscoll somehow. I mean, the podcast, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, was like one of the largest ever uh, grossing podcasts ever. Yep, like like everybody everywhere was listening to it and he still
1: pops up with a new church yes and he's he's like rebranded and that's a whole nother yeah, story yeah, yeah. he's like rebranded himself that guy knows what sells and it's, it's a little scary so I would say this as a parishioner uh, if you go to a church think to yourself what's the most important thing about that pastor is it charisma or is it character? And I think that's going to go a long way towards determining how your church deals with these things. You can have character and charisma. I would just say if you got to choose one or the other, choose the character. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to replay a couple of the clips that were just so challenging when, we, uh, when Aubrey and I got to spend time uh, with Michael Woolworth from Bible League International. We're just going to do that for the close of this hour and tell you the amazing things happening through Bible League International. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Steve, we do a lot of fun stuff on this show, get to talk about a lot of things. But one of the best things we're able to do uh, is to come in contact with organizations that are literally doing amazing work around the globe. And uh, Aubrey and I got to spend some time last week with Michael Woolworth from Bible League International. I didn't know anything of Bible League International, Uh, but what essentially Bible League International does is they focus on ten places in Asia, Africa, Latin America, in the Middle East, uh, and they look to send they're send Bibles there, and basically, Steve, the stories go like this: Um, the stories go like this. Uh, People miraculously come to faith in stories that I I just it was like it was like early church Book Mm. of Acts stuff. But then they're like, we don't have any Bibles. He told one story out of China where like at the end of the underground church service, people would be huddled around the one Bible copying passages onto pieces of paper so that they had something for the week. And I'm like, I don't even know how many Bibles we have in our church. I don't even know how many Bibles we have. And so uh, we're going to come back and play some of this stuff for you. But here's the here's the opportunity, Steve, for people for five dollars literally $5 sends one Bible to the other side of the world. And so you could do the math there and then they have a match. So it's actually sends two Bibles. Uh, But then, you know, we all think about, can I do something that makes an eternal impact with my money? And this literally makes an eternal impact. Like you are putting God's word that these people are praying for into their hands with a little bit amount of money. I don't know about you, I get blown away when I hear stories from around the world, like just going, yeah. oh, gosh, this is like early church Book of Acts stuff.
2: Oh, absolutely. I remember probably 12 years ago I was in a rural part of uh, China in Shandong province, okay. and we had gone there to train uh, Christian leaders. And essentially, you know, they hadn't had the uh, the printing presses and, and Christian uh, literature that we've had for hundreds of years here in America. Um, because of the government censoring what's going on there, um, that everything that we said, they wrote down word for word for word. Um, And I remember teaching like the Romans road to salvation and, and people being like so overjoyed uh, because now they had a method uh, through which they could share their faith. Mm. And so this idea of, of it's, I I saw it for myself um, in uh, rural China and, and, People not having access to uh the printed word of god
1: it's it's unbelievable so we want you to hear some of these stories again we're going to bring them back this first story is is a pastor in Zimbabwe uh listen to the numbers that he gives here let's listen to this Stevie literally says for two hundred Christians there they have one Bible wow these huddle around this thing and uh, like in on one level I'm really thankful that I, you know we're probably the opposite two hundred Bibles for one Christian, you know it's like that <laughs> opposite in the one on the one hand, I feel really thankful that we don't do this on the other hand, the love that they have for God's word is just it's unbelievable,
2: yeah, it's amazing, and probably put in perspective is probably the right uh posture and heart towards yep. God revealing himself to humanity, right yes, he is spoken, and they are excited about hearing and listening and doing what he spoken.
1: That's right. And so again, uh, for $5, you can send a Bible on to the other side of the world. Uh, so if you were to give $100, that would normally send uh, 20 Bibles. But because of the match they're doing, now it's going to be 40 Bibles. Some of you can easily do this. But if all you can do is give $5, that's a Bible. And Steve, here's the crazy thing, and I'm going to tell people how to do it. He told us That they have this math that says for every one Bible that they're able to send, 12 people are converted. Like, it's like the factor of 12, they call it, because now God's Word is spreading and this and that. So here's what you need to do. You could call 1-800-YES-WORD. That's 1-800-YES-WORD. There'll be an operator there 24-7 who can help you out. Or go to 1160hope.com, click on the Bible League banner on that homepage, 1160hope.com, click on the Bible League banner. Uh, The other thing that they find around the world is just unbelievable persecution and hardship. I want you to hear this story. I, I mean, I we we throw the word persecution around here. Uh and I thought Michael Woolworth did a great job the other day when he was here. He said, we don't suffer persecution, we suffer inconvenience. Mm-hmm. And that's not to underplay it. There's some serious stuff happening around here. But these people around the world that they're trying to reach and get Bibles to, they're making life decisions that put their very lives in, in danger. It cuts them off from their families and yet they have a thirst and a hunger for God and his word that seems to transcend even them being tortured.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, just thinking of uh, as human beings, the deepest longing of our soul being acceptance, belonging Mm -hmm. and approval and that like superseding all human needs in some way. And, being able to receive that through uh, God's word and a relationship with Jesus, uh, it seems to dispel even the most grievous things and the, 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 the greatest amount of, of loss that you could uh, like. They really count the cost mm. and say, this is better. This is this is better without the distraction.
1: Uh, so, again, go to 1160hope.com, click on the Bible League banner. Uh, a Bible League, get this stat, reaches 4,000 people daily with the gospel. 400 are trained to share Christ every day, and one, one new church is planted every four hours. I mean, that's what God is doing around the world, and you can have a part in it. Uh, by supplying the money that supplies the Bibles, go to one uh, call one eight hundred yes word. That is one eight hundred yes word, or go to eleven sixty hope dot com. Click on the Bible League, the big red banner. It says Bible. It's the Bible League banner, and there it will take you two minutes, three minutes uh, to fill this out. And when you do, it will make a difference around the world. So that's what we're doing. We're helping out Bible League. Uh, all month long, and we hope you choose to do that. One more time, 800-YES-WORD, or go to 1160hope.com, click on the Bible League banner. Coming up next, uh, Aubrey and I, uh, a week or so ago, a little while ago, were able to record an interview with Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is a renowned pastor. He's host of Truth For Life that airs daily here on AM 1160. He he wrote a new book about the Sermon on the Plain, And we got to spend some time with Alistair Begg to talk about that book, and we're going to bring that to you next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I couldn't be more thrilled than to be joined right now by the senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, and also somebody you hear on the station regularly on the uh, Truth for Life broadcast. Uh, that is Pastor Alistair Begg. Pastor Begg, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Brian. All the better for seeing you and Aubrey. I'm good. <laughs> that is So kind of you. That so is so kind. kind. So good and, uh, Alistair has a new book coming out called The Christian Manifesto, Jesus's Life-Changing Words from the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, just a wonderful book. And Alistair, mm-hmm. just wondering, why would you choose uh, to write on the Sermon on the Plain here from Luke 6? Why Why'd you choose this for this book?
3: Well, I I think it's more these things choose me rather than I choose them. Mm, That uh, in studying them myself, I'm forcibly struck by the challenge that they bring. And as I often say to my congregation, look, if I have to be challenged by it, then you're going to get challenged by it too. (laughs) And uh, certainly the words of Jesus cut through a lot of our... Uh, shibboleths and a lot of our nonsense and a lot of our excuses. Mm. And as I've been rereading this book, I, I've been saying to folks that I feel as though I stood on a rake and the handle came up and hit me right on the head. Ooh. And, uh, and in, in a, in a, in a good way, I hope. Yes. Yeah.
4: Pastor Beg, this passage, I, I love that you're calling it the sermon on the plane what in the world is Jesus calling Christians to what is he raking us or hitting us over the head with a rake about <laughs> well
3: he he's doing it mainly by paradox isn't he I mean he's he's turning he's turning so many of our values upside down hmm. uh, he's saying you know uh, I'm going to introduce you to uh, something that is rather uncomfortable and yet it is phenomenally satisfying it's joyful it's fulfilling It's the answer to the question, you know, where is the good life? Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking for the good life. My best life. Uh, Politicians say we have the answer. Advertisers suggest they've got the solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that's not the case. And uh, religion um, as simply an exercise doesn't have it either. The answer is found in Jesus. And when Jesus speaks plainly to us, as he does in this sermon, um, those are life-changing words.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Begg, uh, we live in a post-Christian culture. That's a lot of what you talk about in this book. How do the teachings change the way that we, we live in a post-Christian culture and even how we view this post-Christian culture?
3: Well, I think one of the things it does is it, it forces us to acknowledge the fact that if we are serious about being the followers of Jesus, we will be different. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're just the same as everybody else – then they have a legitimate right to say. So, why would I ever want to consider the claims of Jesus? I mean, mm-hmm. if it if it hasn't changed your life, why would I, why would I be interested? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when Jesus prays for his followers, he's prays to his Father. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I ask you to keep them from the evil one. Mm-hmm. So, what does it look like to be kept in that way? And the answer is, uh, we live out the principles as the Holy Spirit works within us. Mm.
4: Pastor Begg, one of the things, as you know, Jesus talks about is, you know, blessed are the poor, which can feel a little bit tricky in Western culture, where at least many of us have a lot from a material standpoint. What does Jesus mean when he's talking about being poor for us?
3: Well, uh, you're absolutely right, Aubrey, in terms of uh, the vastness of the, the world's population, Uh, Even those of us who aren't doing particularly well in America find ourselves in the top 1%. Mm. And so the challenge is a real challenge. And what he's talking about is ultimate value. He's talking about motivation. He's talking about what stirs us and moves us, what we live for. Mm. And uh, he's not suggesting that there's uh, there's a great advantage in being penniless. He's pointing out that when we come to the end of ourselves... Both spiritually and often in other ways too, then we discover that uh, on the other end of that is the is the answer that we're looking for that isn't found in the amassing of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, even our best friends who've who've done the best they know that unless they have something beyond that, they really don't have very much at
1: all. Wow! Absolutely right. Wow. As I mentioned, uh, Alistair Begg, Truth For Life is on our station multiple times during the week. Let me encourage you, start your day, your weekday at 7.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160 with Truth For Life. And you can also end your weekday 8 Mm p.m. with Truth For Life. uh, Also on Saturdays at 2 a.m. and 2 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. So you can hear... Uh, pastor beg all over our station I would encourage you to do that and Alistair uh, I want to personalize this a little bit and just ask this question you said that this passage kind of hits you like the like the rake what is like the which part of this passage challenges you the most personally it all challenges me
3: the
2: most I don't know
1: I didn't
3: I didn't give myself more than a minus five in any of the categories, tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I tell you, I, uh, uh, it, it's this kind of thing. There's a perverse part of me that likes it when I see President Biden fall down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> not, and, 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 and that's not good. I mean, yeah. I, that's, yeah. not, that's not good. Um I don't want to regard him as my enemy, mm. but the things that he uh, stands for and suggests are certainly not lining up with the sermon on the plane. Mm. And so the challenge is I have to love those with whom I disagree. Mm. I have to love them, um, which means not accepting everything about them, but mm. loving them because that's what Jesus said to do. Mm. And, uh, Relying on the guidance of the Bible and the help of the Holy Spirit to do that, mm. and maybe we shouldn't use the president as an illustration, but mm. it's such—it's such a focus, and uh, yeah. uh, we could we could do this We could actually—we can flip it to the other side with yeah. uh, do, with Donald mm. as well, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's—it's it's a countercultural day by day, sixty seconds a minute, dying to ourselves mm. and living living in the, in the risen life of Jesus Christ. Amen.
4: Amen. Yeah. He, hearing you say that, I'm also just thinking how sometimes you can read these passages of scripture, these teachings of Jesus and go, okay, I, I'm failing at all of this. I can't <laughs> do it. And, you know, we know that we can't do it in our own strength and our own power, but what's a word pastorally pastor beg for those Christians who are just feel maybe in despair when they read this passage of scripture, or this teaching of Jesus.
3: Well, I, I think in one sense, it ought to lead us there, first of all, mm-hmm. to, and then to look away from ourselves, to look to Jesus, That mm-hmm. the reminder that, that all of our acceptance all day and every day is found in Jesus, not, not found in our ability to uh, muster up sufficient strength to do all these things, but to recognize that I, I don't have anything to argue in my defense. Except that Jesus is a friend for sinners, mm. and I am a sinner.
4: Yeah, and
3: and that Good. all of Jesus' sheep are diseased sheep. Mm. I mean, there is no, there are no, uh, per, there are no perfect sheep. There, there was only one perfect, and He was the shepherd. Mm. And so, the flip side of that, of course, is not to use that kind of thinking as an excuse That's right. for us to be able to um, step on the wrong side, if you like, of the of the boundaries it's 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 a balancing act that requires a steady diet of the bible uh, a look into jesus and engagement with our brothers and sisters in jesus because we need each other to help us if if one falls down the other we can pick him up and if one is getting a fat head the other person can uh, insert the the pin to, to reduce the swelling and, and thereby and
1: we, that way we help that way we help each other. That's, that's, right. good. Yeah. That's, right. oh, that's a great picture. Again, the book is called the Christian manifesto Jesus life changing words from the sermon on the plane. We would encourage you to go get that book. I uh, am mm-hmm. sure it will be well worth your time and also listen to truth for life with Alistair Begg every weekday at 7:30 AM and every weeknight at 8 PM right here on AM 1160. Pastor Beg. it is so good to speak with you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Aubrey. Yep, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. We're thrilled to be joined by a genuine friend of the show, somebody who's given us a good amount of his time over the years of this show. He is the vice president of advocacy and policy at World Relief, the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, amongst many other things he does. That's Matthew Sorens. Matt, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing pretty well. Glad to be with you. Yeah, we're really grateful for you and we're thankful for you coming on. All right. let me just ask you every time I see something I'm watching the today show yesterday morning right and I see stuff on the today show now, my first thought is like man I don't know how to I don't know how to understand what I'm seeing So help us understand the Today show, right, is talking about all the migrants coming across the the river, right, down, coming into the country. And it seems to be a lot more than going on, seems to be a big deal, but I never know who to believe and what's going on. So help our people, myself included, make sense of what's going on at the border right now.
5: Yeah, I mean, it it is actually a big deal what's going on at the border right now. It's not the first time we've had a big deal at the border since it happened every so often, but very large numbers of people are showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in the last uh, several weeks. A very high percentage of them are actually from Venezuela, mm-hmm. which is a, is worth noting because it's a complicated situation that is that is leading people to leave Venezuela. Some of them have actually left Venezuela years ago, but have been in kind of in refugee-like situations in neighboring countries for several years, and they've just reached a point of desperation. Where that's complicated for the, for the United States government is that these are not people trying to sneak into the United States. These are people looking for either to enter at the port of entry or crossing the border uh, without legal permission, but looking for the Border Patrol because they want to seek asylum, mm-hmm. which the U.S. law allows them to do. Um, the challenge, of course, is there's just so many people arriving all at once. It's overwhelming the, the limited infrastructure that's at most points most parts along the border. Um, it's overwhelming the, the care structure that's often composed of local churches and others on both the Mexican and the U.S. side of the border. And so it is a really complicated situation. And to add to that complication, a lot of these people will be. Deported and returned mm. to their countries of origin, and it's important to know that is happening. I mean, we actually deported more people, the by we, the U.S. government deported more people in the last four months than they did in the equivalent four months back in 2019, which is the last time we had a huge surge of arrivals like this. But also, a lot of them have the right under the under the law to stay in the United States until the disposition of their case. Mm. And the problem there is it could take several years to get a disposition on an asylum case in some cases. And so you have this strange category of person. We've got some of them in Chicago. We've got even larger numbers in New York City who are lawfully allowed by the U.S. government to be in the country until their court hearing is completed who are not lawfully allowed to work. And that is kind of a recipe for disaster because, of course, well, how are you going to pay for an apartment? How are you going to cover rent? if you're not allowed to work and yet you're supposed to be here pending this court hearing. So it's it's a real challenge. And I mean, we have churches that are stepping up to care where they can both along the border, but also in communities like Chicago and around the country, but it is, it's logistically very, very complicated.
2: Hmm. Yeah, man. I probably five minute drive from my house is the Bridgeport, Bridgeport police uh, station. And so outside of that police station is, probably uh i drove past the other day is probably 120 venezuelan uh, i'm guessing um uh, immigrants and migrants that that are there and our church um is i tell brian it's a stone's throw away from the united center um but our church is trying to figure out what what to do and how to support mm-hmm. those folks and um there's a number of different things in little village that that's uh, uh crew of uh, churches that have organized to help feed some folks, but what are some of uh, the most valuable things that we can be doing to help some of these folks who are here in Chicago?
5: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some great church efforts and probably some of the same ones that I'm familiar with or what you're mentioning there and the world Relief is doing some in, in our Chicago office up in Albany park. Um, there's lots of good direct responses. I would say one of the things that needs to happen is sort of the systemic problem. Like ultimately these people need, You know, food, they need support, but they need that because they're not allowed to go work and support themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's not because there's no jobs in Chicago. (laughs) There's actually a labor shortage in Chicago. They're just not legally allowed to to take them. So, one positive change, actually, just last week, uh, the the U.S. government announced that they'll grant temporary protected status to Venezuelan nationals who were here before a certain time. That will take a little bit of time to kick in, but will allow them to get work authorization. Again, Venezuelans only in that case. So, it's not everyone, but that's the largest group. Um, But, I mean, there's some fundamental challenges to how our immigration policies work that we keep getting into this situation. uh, Frankly, part of the challenge for Venezuelans particularly is that – and this is – they're coming from a formerly wealthy country, which is to say Venezuela was quite well off 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the effect of that is there's not a ton of Venezuelan immigrants in Chicago or anywhere in the United States relative to like Salvadorans or Hondurans or Mexicans which means they're a lot less likely to have a cousin somewhere who's Mm going to provide them housing. And frankly, even without authorization, help them find a job, which is kind of the winking and nodding system for how it's worked for a long time with with immigrant groups. Um, Of course, we we don't want to encourage people to work unlawfully, but working is not a bad thing. So having the opportunity to work lawfully is something that we'd love to see the government make an opportunity, especially when we have a huge need in the U.S. labor market.
1: Yeah, Uh, Matt, again, thanks for that. Uh, Steve and I are both pastors, as you know, uh, and you work with churches through World Relief all the time. What what should pastors, what would you encourage pastors who want to engage in this to be saying from their pulpits, to be saying to their church uh, and to be doing? What would you encourage pastors like us to be doing right now?
5: Yeah, invitation. And I don't even know half of how challenging the role of being a pastor is right now. (laughs) But I think that My simple challenge would be, I always challenge your people to go back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have biblical examples of what, you know, there's stories in the the Gospels when Jesus and his disciples were encountered by a really large, overwhelming group of people. And the response of the disciples, you know, well-meaning and fairly rationally was, Lord, send these people away. Tell them to go get (laughs) food. There's no food here. This is not the place for them. Send them away. And Jesus's response is to say, well, you give them something to eat. And he takes the little that, you know, a little boy has and a few fish and loaves of of bread. And I suppose he didn't need to do that. He could have just made food out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But he does take what we offer up. And I think that's where, you know, we at World Relief, we love to see local churches offer what they can. And we've seen some beautiful examples of this. You know, churches will say, well, we've actually got some space, but we don't have any cash. You know, we can't figure out the financial resources to lead, but we have some space. And another church maybe out in in a different part of the the metro area would say, well, we could provide some financial support to help cover some of the costs here. Um, And you know, we see the church coming together in that sort of picture of the body of Christ where not every part is exactly the same, functioning together. And I think that's that's a moment for the Church to step into that. But mm. the reminder to our people would be, these are people, every one of them made in the image of God, many of them actually brothers and sisters in Christ who already know Jesus, mm. others of whom don't yet know Jesus, who are going to be—their view of Jesus is going to be shaped by how they're received in the United States, particularly by those who profess to follow Christ— And that's actually an opportunity for the church, even though it's also, of course, a challenge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good word. Matt, uh, as we let you go, where specifically can people go? Tell us about the World Relief website, maybe social media. Where can people go find out what they can do and how their churches could help?
5: Yeah, so worldrelief.org has all sorts of resources, from the work we're doing at the border to uh, in local communities like Chicagoland. And if they want to go right to what's happening um, in the Chicago area, it's worldrelief.org slash
1: Chicagoland. That's great. Again, Matthew Sorens is vice president of advocacy and policy at World Relief, co-author of the book, Welcoming the Stranger Amongst Others. I'd encourage you to follow Matt on Twitter, at uh, Matthew Sorens. It's a great follow. You learn all this type of stuff. You get kept up on what's going on at the border in Chicago and through World Relief. Matt, we always appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much. I was happy to do it. We'll, we'll be back again tomorrow. From 4 until 6 p.m. For Steve Koble, I am Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.